the way God wants a thing done is just as important as the thing done. Hold that principle. I'm going to prove it in a minute. The way God wants a thing done is as important as the thing done. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your holy word. Your word is good and trustworthy and holy. Through your word we come to know you, to love you, be saved by you. Lord, your word reveals the origin of the world, creation of all things, and it brings us right through the redemptive plan in all history, right to the end, when things come to the judgment seat of Christ. Old things haven't passed away, old things becoming new. There's a new heaven and a new earth. Lord, for these things we look forward. I pray that you would place the truth on that reality of eternity in our hearts as we Read Romans chapter 8 and bring us to a place of faith and trust in what you have said. I ask these things for your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This is episode 26 from Romans 8, verses 12 to 15. Focus on verse 14. Title of this sermon is God's Will, God's Way. So then, reading from Romans 8. Brothers and sisters, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if we are living in accord with the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit of Christ, by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So this verse 14, all those are being led by the Spirit of God. These are the children of God. This is key for our consideration today because we're looking at this result of being born again. The result is that a person is led by the Spirit of God. And he says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons and daughters of God. The people who are being led. But the key part part to this is, and there's two key parts, you know, is that they're children. All those being led are children. To be led by the Spirit of God, a person must be connected to God by a spiritual rebirth. Jesus said to a religious leader, Nicodemus, steeped in self-praise and misunderstanding God's law, that it does not save sinners but condemns them, He said to this man, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. To be born again does not mean a person experiences perfection, but as a child of God, they desire the Father's direction. Abba, he says, you have not received the spirit of slavery to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cried, Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa, It's a term used as tender endearment, of tender endearment by a beloved child. It's a a dependent relationship with the father. For anything like me, when I was a little kid, I mean, it just came over to me, you know, someday my father could die. What would I do without my father? I mean, I was really little, I don't know, five. But, you know, there's that fear. 
because there's this close dependence upon God. I mean, he's everything to you, your father. He's a representation of God. And so uh, there's this transference that takes place when a person becomes a child of God. And direction is the key. For this reason, Paul followed up with this verse 15, for you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Satan holds people in slavery all their lives because fear of death. People then wind up thinking in terms of let us eat and drink because tomorrow we die. I mean, live now. Go for the gusto because it's soon going to be all over. And people don't usually realize just how soon it's going to be. I mean, grass grows up in a day and it's gone in a day. It withers, it's gone. But they get the concept through the devil because he wants to hold them in slavery to their passions and their desires so they fulfill everything for the moment. That's all fleshly and carnal and it's, it's this whole idea that Paul's talking about. We're not, we're not, oh, we don't owe the flesh anything. The future has really no meaning for the atheists. Life is this here and now and it's done. And people who are connived into thinking that even though they're religious, but they live with that whole concept, that whole idea of atheism in their minds that they need to live right now because life is coming to an end. There's nothing Christian about that. The Christian believes in the future. He believes in the promises of God. He has a hope in the new Jerusalem, in, in the new heaven and the new earth. How the Christian lives out their life is just as important as becoming a Christian. Because the Christian is a person who lives out a different life. Old things are passing away. Old things are becoming new. It's life from the dead. It's the resurrected life of Christ, which is done through dependence upon God and being led by the Holy Spirit, being filled by the Holy Spirit. It's not the doctrine we're looking at right today because we're talking about being led by the Spirit of Paul is, or I am, and expositing it. At this place, in our analysis of Romans, I want us, we need to consider what it means to be led by the Spirit. Now, people would consider some things which are part and parcel, if you will, with being led by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads people to the Word of God. The Holy Spirit leads people to live by faith. The Holy Spirit leads people to keep the law. But any one of these can be taken to extremes. They can be distorted. And you take something that's really good and you turn it into something that's bad. How does that happen? Well, we're in a war. We're in a battlefield. And the immature Christian, the, the child who doesn't grow up, he's a, he's a baby on a battlefield. It's just, it's not good. Some focus on the, on the study of God's word, the acquiring of, of facts, uh, without understanding how theology or the study of God will impact how we live our lives. And without that understanding, without that clarity of how it, those facts just become worthless. Actually, learning the Bible is, uh, is, makes matters worse. I mean, who's worse off, the person who doesn't know he's doing something wrong or the person who knows exactly what he's doing wrong and he does it anyway? Obviously, the one who does it anyway. Well, let's you look into the Bible. We can look into it and praise God and worship God and understand how these things come together correctly, or we can misunderstand them, and we don't. if we don't worship God well, then we won't see ourselves clearly like Isaiah standing in the threshold of the temple, and he, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips. He, he was getting the picture. And that's what it's meant to happen. We look into the Bible, and it becomes a mirror, and we look at ourselves. And if we're forgetful hearers, and we just go off and forget what kind of person we were, no, nothing's accomplished. That's not being led by the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit is coming on the conviction of the Holy Spirit that things aren't what they're meant to be. And then there's the blood that cleanses it all away. And I was reading about, writing about that, the, the, the red heifer last week. 
and how it cleanses and it, it's clean, it just makes things right uh, in our soul because we understand the, the, the full, the, the effect of the blood of Christ on it, not only our soul in the, in the mind of God, but also in our conscience, very important. Because the, the devil will just tear you apart from God with a guilty conscience. Understanding the Bible is for practice. Well, that's why Paul said in 12.2 of Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So one is a wrong way of studying the scriptures and have just touched on this, but it's very important to take seriously how you study, how you read, how you pray, how you bring those two together, and you, and you bring them together in a way that actually pleases God to praising Him and to seeing yourself in a repentant way, and, and, and you go through that every day. Others try to obey the law of God out of a sense of duty. Obeying the law is nothing better than obeying the, the law by being led by the Holy Spirit. To do it out of pride in the flesh not so good. Paul uh, said, uh, should we sin that grace may abound? Looking at the other end of it, a false liberty. May God, God forbid such a thing. And so false liberty is very bad, but legalism is at least as bad, if not more so. Why do I say that? Well, in Galatians chapter 1, excuse me, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ is publicly portrayed, was portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Really? You didn't put in really, I did Perfection by the flesh has pride written all over it. No, no humility. There's, you know, and, the, and pride through perfection, you know, there, that's no means or motivation for keeping the law. These things are internal and very difficult to see. I want to I add that in there. This is not something you just snap judgments whether you're doing it right or wrong. It's best learned over time, and it will be, you know, if you... Continually seek to be led by the Holy Spirit. Paul condemns this whole act of keeping the law with the wrong motive, trying to, those particularly who are trying to earn heaven. Heaven cannot be, heaven cannot be earned. If you're trying to do that, you're going to be very disappointed one day. If, on the other hand, you're trying to keep the law with a good motive, but that, that good motive is, is still steeped in this and pride and fleshly attempts of self-effort rather than total dependence upon Almighty God and walking in brokenness over sin whenever available. Otherwise, you're going to hear the words from 6 and 7. Read them. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. See, this is a, this is a different gospel, which is not just another but there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There's only one gospel. Any other gospel is just a distortion of the true gospel. So, and Paul understood that, you know, sometimes people do the right thing for the wrong reason. Sometimes they do the right thing in the wrong way. You want a really uh, red flag on whether or not you're led by the Spirit. You find out that what you're doing is it. The, is it what God wants, but is it the way God wants it done? And I'm, this is where we're heading for in this message. Pay, pay close attention to this. It's important. By forsaking Christ, they were following a different gospel. Today, in Christian circles, believe it or not, no matter what the world may say, critical race theory is another gospel. There are two races very clearly defined in Romans chapter 5. If you miss it, well, there's, you're either very weak in the faith, very young in the faith, or very deceived in the faith. Because Romans 5 makes it very clear 
that there's the race in Adam that we're all genetically connected to, which Paul goes through, takes pains to go through three chapters, one, two, and three, and brings it to a climactic conclusion, which is for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All in the human race. The second race is those justified by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a different blood. That's where the rebirth comes in. That's where people are born again, anew. Uh, a new spirit is given to them, a new heart. Uh, Hebrews 8 and 10, and you spend some time in here, and you see there's a new what? Covenant. There's a new testament. And in that new testament, in that, in that covenant, that's why it's called the New Testament, there's a new heart given to people. The old things passed away, the new, old things become new. And in that heart, God's law is placed. Without the rebirth, it doesn't take place. It's fake. It's phony. And those people stand before God one day and say, didn't I do many wonderful works in your name? Didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I do miracles in your name? And God's going to say, I never knew you. You weren't born again. You never received Christ. You're still, you're still, you haven't turned from your sin yet. You're lost. That's a bad day. Here's this other gospel. And believe me, Christianity has been flooded with this other gospel. And today it's just being renewed. Let's give it another shot in the arm. Because there's many families within the human race, but the only one human race. And there's a difference between a race and a family. Under evolution and Darwin and all that, all those lies, you know, there's races. There's no races. There's the human race. At Babel, all of that got confused. All, all the languages, all, all the nationalities began to develop from that curse because man, again, within 500 years of the flood, are saying, yeah, we're not going to go all over the earth and fill the earth. We're not going to do what you want to do. We're going to build a, a tower right here and we're going to make a name for ourselves. Yet it didn't work out so good. We've been at war with each other ever since. And, and, and men just continue to further this lie under the teachings of the devil because we, we live in last days for the last 2,000 years where there's seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, biblical, all. Uh, so be careful about this whole races thing. Read your Bible. Study Romans 5. Understand there's two federal heads. There's Adam from which the whole race comes, the human race, and then there's Christ. We're born into the, through his blood into the second race. And all people, all have sinned. We all may do it in, in different ways, but God is the judge, and he will judge all men upon, who are not in Christ as worthy of the lake of fire, which will burn forever and ever. This is biblical. Just read about it in Romans. Just read about it in Revelation. Just read about it in the Gospels. Jesus talked about it a lot. So what does Paul say about people with another gospel. He says, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Wait a minute. What did he just say? Yeah, accursed. Verse 90. He says it again. As we have said before, even now I'm saying it again, right away. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you, pre you received, he is to be Cursed. That, that is no little word that Paul is using there. I mean, he's saying that false prophets should be cursed to destruction. That's what this word is. It's, it's an offering. You put it on the altar, it's burned up, it's destroyed. It's incapable at that point of being saved. Instead, Christ, instead of Christ being destroyed, which he was, for them, they reject the gospel, they distort the gospel, and they bring themselves under a curse by which Paul says, you're done. You're incapable of being redeemed. You look into the history of the word. Look what the word is really saying. Anathema. Cursed in the worst possible way. Another gospel is a bad thing. I would say avoid it. No matter who's coming out with it, who you're hearing it from, know your Bible well enough not to go down that road. If you're a Christian... If you're a child of God, you shouldn't want to. But if you do, there is a 
There's a beam of seed of Christ in which, you know, whatever's not of gold, silver, and precious stones that can stand the fire, we're all going to go through that fiery judgment. The wood, the hand, the stubble, and I'm not talking about some bizarre purgatory. We're talking about works. We're not talking about sin. All sin was under the blood. It's all forgiven. It's all forgotten. It's cast into the depths of the sea. It's like the east from the west. He's going to remember it no more. But there is this matter of works. And, and most Christians don't take it very seriously because of the impact of the forgiveness of Christ. And I understand that. Uh, but we should take it seriously because I think the way it's going to work is this. I, I think we're going to come to a, a much keener understanding of the pain and the suffering of Christ on the cross. And with that in view, we're not going to want to be standing there and not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We're going to want to hear that. We're not going to want to see it get burned up because, you know, all of this that you, you, you were kind of believing in was false. And you actually even shared it with other people. Not good. We want to be led by the Spirit. So what are the choices that we have? And I don't know that if I went into the third way of listening to the devil's lies, truly Spirit-filled people or people in true revival are consumed with awareness of sin. I mean, this is the right way of doing it. They're consumed by an awareness of sin and Christ's ability to wash it away and empower them to victory over it. They're empowered to victorious Christian living. This is revival. Not revival in a big general sense where, like in the Great Awakening, tens of thousands or at Pentecost, people come to Christ. But in an individual sense where sin has a depth of meaning that we see ourselves for what we are and we walk daily in a broken, humbled way and we become more and more and more humble and we become more and more aware of the sufferings of Christ and this becomes everything to us. We live by faith, and faith is not dependent upon the revelation that God performs miraculous acts. It's dependent upon the miracle. It's, it's quite the opposite. You know, so there are those people, you know, there's the legalists, there's, and we all can fall into this. And there's the, 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 the Bible thumping for the wrong reason in the wrong way, and there's spiritual people believing in all kinds of, and then there's people consumed by the idea of living a holy life where sin becomes the thing to be avoided and to be gained victory over. There's those, those four, three errors in one true. So what are the choices we have? Well, we can live by the word without a transformation of how we live. We can live by the law and be cursed. We can live by a false liberty and be worldly in gross ways. We can live by a false spirituality and, 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 and fall through pride in a, in a fake spirituality. Or, Or we can consider that in each of these ways and different forms of worldliness are not dealt with in a biblical and life-transforming way. The last choice is to believe and act upon Romans 8.14, all those being led by the Spirit. These are the children of God. So much needs to be said now, and I don't have the time, but let me send you in the correct direction. We live during a time when success is measured by accomplishment. You hear what I said? I said, we live during a time when success is measured by accomplishment. In the church, it's not all that different. I hate to say that oftentimes, not all churches. Be careful not to think, well, that's not me, without being careful about what's going on. People in the pews in a lot of churches equals success. Vibrant preaching that keeps people coming is victory for the church. Whether or not they serve Christ to self-sacrifice and total abandoning of all worldliness, idolatry, and sin, well, not so much. 
Is this true? And if this is true in, in many churches today, then how did the church get to such a lukewarm place? The principle we need to understand is this one. Listen carefully. Christian people bear the fruit of doing God's will, God's way. Let me change that. Victorious people, victorious Christian people, bear the fruit of doing God's will, God's way, and for God's glory. Let me explain the principle. The principle must be applied to how we, before I actually explain the principle, I want want to explain how it's being applied. The principle must be applied to how we build the church, how we live our lives, because we are the church. And building the church is being built up in ourselves and giving ourselves to build other people, bring people into the kingdom, bring bring people into the church. The church grows. I'm not saying avoid any of that, but to do it right for the right reasons. How people build a church has always been a problem. I mean, that's why the New Testament was written, mostly. You know, to correct the errors in the church. I mean, except for the opening years, that spectacular awakening that took place during the Pentecost, uh, the church, in those opening chapters, you see them giving their lives away, giving them money and fortune away, just living for one another out of a love for Christ. Since then, after 900 years of complete apostasy and heresy, the, the church went through a reformation and, and uh, the, church got re- the, the gospel got recovered. What didn't re- get recovered was ministry. Never really did get recovered. If it had, ch- the Christianity wouldn't be a spectator sport even today. What I mean? Well, you got 10,000 members cheering on 18 leaders. That's a football game. That's not the church. The church is intended to be uh, worker bees. You know, just everybody's got their own gifts and they have their own, and they're doing them. And I'm not talking about greeting people at the door. I'm talking about discipleship. I'm talking about one-on-one, caring for each other's problems, caring for each other's spiritual life, holding each other accountable in a loving way to make sure that people are thinking they're in the kingdom when they're not, being sure that we encourage the brethren when, when people are distressed, when they're, they're depressed, you know, when they're immature, you know, encouraging one another on to live a victorious Christian life. This is discipleship. This is the church at its best, what it's meant to be. The, God, the way God wants a thing done is just as important as the thing done. Hold that principle. I'm going to prove it in a minute. The way God wants a thing done is as important as the thing done. And this is primarily with regards to the church. Just do it does not work in God's economy. Not going to happen. Self-effort does not work in God's economy. Uh, Or any time of pride does not work uh, in God's economy. In, in the kingdom of God, um, people who are prejudiced towards other people fa- show favoritism. I mean, do I need to really talk about that from anyone who's a longtime Christian in the church? There's no place for this. There's no place for intellectualism in the church. One out of five people in the early church were slaves. You know, some might have been a little educated. Most of them weren't. And most people were like, you know, fishermen. And, and uh, you know, just look at the, the disciples, the apostles. I mean, these were very ordinary people. In my last message, we observed Moses. You know, he came to desire God. I mean, he was everything as a prince in Egypt. He was nothing as a shepherd. And I just herded sheep for 40 years. And then God sends him back to the original mission. And then he's just broken. He's worthless. Yeah, I can't do it. He's asking the wrong guy. I can't even talk. You know, he needed Aaron to talk for him. You know, he was a mess. But God also referred to him in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, as the most humble man uh, on the earth at the time. This is no little thing. God does that to people to make them usable. Proud people. 
intellectual giants can be very useful and very humble. I mean, I can mention a few I won't. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, you know, big one, you know, in the 20th century. Real brilliant person. Rare, very rare, very humble. If you're not going with us, Moses said, I'm not going. I'm paraphrasing that to God. How then will you get glory if you're not with us? You know, Moses just loved God that much, respected God, honored, glorified God that much. And I'm pointing this out for a reason, because we're looking at Moses. Two separate passages. But I want you to understand, you know, where how God viewed Moses and what a spiritual man he was. In this particular case, he didn't do real well. He didn't do real well in the beginning. You know, killed an Egyptian, ran away from Egypt. You know, uh, what did he think he was going to do? Capture Egypt by one at a time. But in this case, he, he lives for 40 years, devout to Christ, to God, uh, attacked verbally by the children of Israel, thought he was going to be killed and stoned numerous times for 40 years, basically. You know, and after 40 years, he kind of did a little blunder. So the first one is Acts chapter 17, verses 5 to 7. And we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it so that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Then he named the place Masach and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That may not seem too bad, but before God, that was very bad. Why? God makes promises. God destroyed Egypt to bring the people out. He destroyed Egypt because they were sinful. They they were idolatrous and, and, and all that went on there. But he gave promises to Israel. He, he brought them to Sinai. He gave the word to Israel, which is just prior, which is just after this. This is Exodus 17. Um, but the people started this way. I mean, they just, they had to, they doubted. Most of that generation were unbelievers. Most, they were not led by the Spirit of God. They were led by their own lusts and their own selfishness. So is the Lord among us or not? Moses comes over, he strikes the rock, water comes out, they get, they get all the water they need to quench their thirst. Before the first miracle, the people questioned. At the time of the second miracle, the people said the following, Why did you make us? And in the, in, in the second one, that's from Numbers 20. 8 through 12. Numbers 8 through Numbers 20, 8 through 12. But the second time they said to him, Why did you make us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? Is it not a place of grain? It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. Sounds familiar to the first time. Just an aggravating, depraved, you know, after seeing miracle after miracle, the shoes never wearing off their feet, manna coming down from heaven, water coming from a rock, the Red Sea dividing, the coming out of slavery, all of this. And what, and what are they doing? They're, they're looking back to Egypt. They want to go back to slavery. Why? For, for a grain for figs, for vines, for pomegranates. The heck with eternity, salvation, deliverance from sin. Forget all of that. We don't want any of that. We want the world. This is what they did. They did for 40 years. Verse 6 Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. The assembly is right outside the door. 
Moses and Aaron, they just fall on their faces. I mean, they've been hearing this for 40 years. Let's be fair to them. A million and a half, maybe, people. You know, just uh, just beat up, threatened. Time without number, undoubtedly. And at that time, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The people were evil. They were unbelieving. God wanted to wipe them out time and again. Went up on the mountain. Moses, just, just stand aside. I'm going to wipe them all out. Destroy them. I'll start over with you. And Moses pleads for their life. Time without number. You know. <clears throat> they had no faith, and so God turned an 11-day journey into 40 years of wandering until all of that generation died off. And they're back here again. They wanted to return to Egypt and the bondage. Now, how many times as Christians we walk into a wilderness? We have options. And we can say all the worst possible things. Or we could say all things work together for the good of those who love God. I'm loved of God. I don't need any proof. God proved that to me 2,000 years ago when he sent his son to die on a cross to carry all my sins that have an eternal weight of punishment. Took them all on the cross in his body, in his soul, so that I wouldn't have them anymore. So we can, we can look at life from that perspective. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. What's that? Ver- next verse. Conformity to Christ. Christ was willing to face the cross and suffer that he might be glorified and bring all of us who believe in him by his grace into eternity with him, into the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, and to save us from eternal destruction. Now, that same choice is made for the child of God. Suffer persecution, rejection, all the things of life with a good spirit, with a good perspective, led by the Spirit of God, not by the lusts of the flesh, not by the works, not according to the flesh, so that we might glorify God and be glorified in Him. Therefore, the question to answer is this, how was God to be perceived through what Moses did the second time? The second time, verse 7 says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff, you and your brother Aaron, assemble the congregation, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it shall yield its water. So you will bring water for them out of the rock and have the congregation and their livestock drink. This, This is right from the mouth of God. Now, how was God to be perceived? I would submit long suffering. They're doing it again. And, and have done it again and again, and, and he's, he's showing his grace. I mean, he's God, so he knew what was going to happen, but he could have perceived Moses, well, he'd do the same thing he's been doing all along. But how was God perceived by the people? Well, verse 9 says, So Moses took the staff from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron summoned, summoned the assembly in front of the rock. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels. You ever get to that place where you just had enough and you just kind of explode? Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Wait a minute, Moses. um, I have no right to judge you. You're a better man than me, by far. Um, But uh, who's bringing the water from the rock? I mean, in his anger, he said something that he didn't mean. He said something that was outside of himself. Something that after 120 years of life and walking with God seriously for 40 of those years uh, uh, was not him anymore. But this is, what, this is what he said. Listen now, you rebels. Not, not us rebels. I mean, he was a good guy. He was being conformed to the image of Christ. He was being transformed. But he wasn't perfect yet. Uh, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses raised his hand, struck the the rock twice, 
with a staff. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation in the left side drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Since you did not trust in me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, for that reason you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Think about this pastor, assistant pastor, missionary. Think about this who's ever listened to this, who's a Christian worker. This is Moses God spoke to. Moses didn't, wasn't kept out of heaven by God. Moses is twice in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Moses is spoken of like really well in, 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 the, in the Bible as more humble than any man on the face of the earth in his time, just like Job. Moses is in heaven. But Moses didn't lead the people into the promised land. Those were called the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel argued with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. God is not like men. God gives men grace all the time they're on the earth. Every day, every year. He doesn't have to give them one Second, soon as we come to that point, when we know right from wrong and we choose to do it, from that time on, it's done. Before that, no. After that, absolutely. After that, we're owning to God's mercy and his grace because there's no other way into heaven. And here, Moses didn't show God to be that way. When a pastor works in the church and in subtle ways, not striking a rock with a rod any more than people commit adultery by carving wood into idols much anymore. Uh, but there are other, other forms of idolatry, much more subtle. Just as guilty, send a person to hell just the same way. Keep people out of leading the people into the land the same way. God buried Moses, not in the promised land. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. No one does, I think. To stand before the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ for the believer, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, but it's not something we really want to endure. I mentioned it briefly before. I think that has a serious part in it. But I think we need to be really careful about how we build the church and what part we play, and what part we play before the people. Dare we not, by any subtle actions that we would never come out of our mouth, we would say, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? I've been to many a pastor's meetings, and pastors sometimes don't take, speak very nicely about their flock, like somehow they're above it all. God help the men who th look at the flock that way. This is not a good thing. In conclusion, Moses and Aaron heard the words of the Lord, but did not do them as instructed. Do Christians build a church God's way? All right, well, let me ask a few questions in closing. Is there unity in the church? I recently, I've mostly heard from people, many, numerous people, you know, it can't be done. I understand why people would say that. Um, but uh, do you realize when I bring this up that John chapter 17, Jesus is praying? Jesus is praying uh, on, his, on his deathbed, so to speak. He's on his way to Gethsemane. He's going to the cross. He's hours away from it. And he's praying for unity. I mean, every phrase. It's some form of unity between either the Father and the Son or the Father and the Son and the, and the church or the Son and the church. It's all about unity. And yet, you know, it can't be done. With an attitude like, we're not really going to try. Really? Is there purity of membership? Or do we allow anyone who says they're a member, you know, to be a member? Is there spirit-filled accountability according to Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and many other texts in the New Testament? Not for the purpose of judging and throwing people out. For the purpose of 
not abating, uh, helping people think they're going to heaven when they're not. And keeping the church pure so it, it does things like be unified. Any disunity in the church is caused for one reason. Somebody's not walking with God. You see, if I'm in union with God and in agreement with his word, and you're in agreement with God, we're unified. Somebody's out of step all the time. Now that all the denominations and all the reasons to be out of step, we have no right to be looking to everybody else. We need to be figuring out where we're wrong and get it right. And once we get it right, we get in unity with everybody else. <sighs> Is leadership humble? As the apostle who denied the Lord and were terribly broken under the weight of unfaithfulness, you know, the, the 12 at the cross, and, Jeter, and Peter went out and wept violently, the scripture says. They were broken. I mean, are all are, are, are the leaders in the church, if I'm speaking to the leaders right now, are we broken like that and we walk in that kind of humility? Or are you like just really happy with the fact that God sent you to seminary and now you know better than everybody else? I'm not saying these things to hurt anyone's feelings. I'm saying these things because they think the hour's late. I'm not sure how close it is before bad things, really bad things start to happen. And around the world for the last century, they've been having people been persecuted to death. We've just been safeguarded in America. Or do we fill leaders' hearts with great learning and inflate their pride so they become all but worthless like Moses in this one episode? Not like Moses in chapter 12 and verse 3, where he's the humblest of all men. Moses did not do as he was instructed by God to speak to the rock, but called people rebels. The rod was divided, that divided the Red Sea and started the journey to be to the promised land it closed the old world and the old life behind them was now used as an instrument of disobedience by Moses to all the people. The rod, the rod struck once in the beginning, and that was symbolic of striking the rock, which is Christ. Christ was struck for the people. The people rejected Christ. And in Moses' words that it was a rebellious people come out of God's mouth many times. Stiff-necked and rebellious people. But it can only come from God's mouth, not ours. We know the truth like Isaiah knew the truth. I'm a person of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. And I can share that in the scripture. And I can point the finger at everyone, including myself, from the scripture. Because when I speak from the scripture, I'm speaking for God. God is saying this, not me. I don't have the right to say this. I don't have the right to judge anybody for anything. I know I'm going to hell if it weren't for the blood of Christ. I, I, I know that I would deserve every second for eternity there. For one thing, I would never repent apart from the power of God. I would never change my ways. I would never choose Christ. No one ever does and can. This is the reality of Scripture. The reality of what it means to be a sinner is right here. And so Romans 8 makes this beautiful declaration. For all those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Are you, are you led by the Spirit of God? If you're anything like me, you know, you struggle with your life to be led by the Spirit of God. You face the world, the flesh, and the devil. Not one of them easy. I'm not saying this is easy just to be identified with Christ and to be humble and to reach for Christ and to find Christ makes it possible. You can overcome lust and pride, jealousy, can anger. I mean, anything can be overcome in Christ. The devil flees away from the Christian who's on their knees. Now, if you're not praying much, well, then you're, in, you're walking in the flesh. You're living according to the flesh. You're not living according to the Spirit. If you don't pray, if you don't humble yourself, if you don't give yourself to, to God the way God wants you to, 
then you're living according to the flesh and you're not going to know victory. Don't blame it on God. But if you pray, if you spend long vigils at times, if you, if you spend some good amount of time every day in prayer, well, then you can expect to be led by the Spirit. And you can expect, well done, good and faithful servant. You can do what Paul did and what Paul said at the end of his life and said, I fought the good fight and I finished the race. Therefore, there's laid up for me a crown of glory. And he didn't know all the details and he wasn't going to judge himself and he said that once before. But at the end of his life, he could have that kind of certainty. Look, I haven't given up on the gospel. I, I, I preached the gospel and I haven't distorted the gospel. I'm not going to be cursed. I know God. I love God. God loves me. There may be some things lost, but it's not all lost, or most of it. Let's live lives that where it's not mostly lost. Let's live holy lives. Let's, let's live lives. And in future broadcasting, it's going to be about, you know, what, what that really looks like. It's tough for me, you know, to think about these things and to speak on these things. It's not easier. There's nothing easier about it. There's nothing easy for anybody. But there is victory. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this message, this portion of Scripture. I thank you for just making it possible for us to have hope, for us to have joy and contentment and peace right here and right now. We know a day is coming. We know because you promised it. <laughs> you do not break your promises. We, we know that a day is coming when death will be done away with. Be no sickness, no dying, no pain, no suffering, no sleep, no tired. We'll, we'll always be energized. We'll always be renewed from, from second to second in the Spirit. We'll be led by the Spirit, filled with Spirit, energized with Spirit, 100% all the time. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The souls of righteous men made perfect. Even now, if I were to go from this life, that's where I go. I don't need the resurrection body to be there. To be in the presence of the Lord. I'll await the resurrection of the body, be in the presence of the Lord. What do I need? I, need, I don't need anything. All we ever need is Christ. Lord, grant this message to the heart of every person listening. Allow them to, to hear the benefits, the abundance of life lived in the Spirit, and the dangers of not living uh, led by the Spirit. I ask these things for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.